I'm not that extreme with it anymore. I do think that there is a time and a place for for stretching or kind of that banded work or, or even some foam rolling. However, I just don't think you should just be blindly doing it if something feels tight. It should be after an assessment and you determine that something is a true mobility issue or, or at least a tone issue and not just a, a motor control issue. Because I do think you can actually make something worse if you're stretching something that shouldn't. Like if you're stretching a hamstring, I do think that that can actually – increase back pain, increase more extension, just because those hamstrings are the only thing that's actually holding on to your pelvis to kind of get you stability. And you take that stability away from the hamstrings, and then your brain, your brain just freaks out and kind of goes into panic. That was Cody Plofker, drawing from his experience with PRI and SFMA, talking with us on how important it is to have a holistic athletic assessment before simply stretching that tight muscle. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Free Lap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Free Lap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today, we have guest Cody Plofker. He is the co-founder of Adapt Performance and Rehab in Lawrence Township, New Jersey. He's worked with athletes of all levels and ranges, including those in the NFL and collegiate ranks. Cody is an expert in blending PRI principles with modern athletic performance methods. And for those of you who enjoyed the lifting concepts talk with Justin Moore that we did a few episodes uh, a few episodes ago, this will be another incredible piece that runs along the same thought lines. And I'll tell you what, like there's probably been maybe two or three things that have really changed how I see and train athletes in a big way this past year. And Postural Restoration Institute classes have definitely been one of them. Uh, it's it's really a game changer when you get down to it. And, it. and one of the things I really like doing with this podcast is kind of going against the grain, so to speak. There's these these cues that we've been given with movements or this idea of how movements should be done for years where, you know, that butt back, chest out, sit back mentality that runs through so many things in the weight room. So it's been about a year I've been going through the PRI seminars, talking to great coaches like Cody and also Justin. And it's just a big piece missing, I think, in a lot of um, coaching paradigms, the ideas of the spinal engine, respiration, and also, and what we're going to talk about today, how to optimally assess and correct athletes based on 
pelvic position or based on their breathing rather than as you saw in the intro rather than just saying oh this muscle's tight well let's stretch it uh as with anything i mean the body is pretty smart like and that's something i've been realizing just in full the last i've known it for a while but every year that i learn more about what the body can do on its own and the body is the brain is smart it's going to make a tight muscle tight for a reason in many cases to compensate or to create stability and so we need to respect that we need to learn more about why that's happening i think um, strength coaches uh, we we often get into a reductionist thinking of well just roll and stretch that muscle uh, but the fact of the matter is the body is very complex and that's where cody's experience is such an incredible help for athletes and then educating coaches uh, Cody's been a student of not only PRI for many years, he's also has experience in common assessment systems such as FMS and SFMA, as well as functional range conditioning. Uh, since these are very common tools in the sports performance world, I'm really excited to talk with Cody specifically on how he has integrated all these tools and what his assessment protocol uh, looks like when he's working with athletes. So uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about dealing with common athlete issues that we often see such as quote unquote, tight ankles, uh, tight hip flexors, internal rotation deficits, um, dealing with hip extension pattern problems. I mean, these are things if you've been around the field long enough, you're always going to hear come up, you're going to see with your athletes. So we're going to get in and really get into Cody's brain with how he sees athletes in light of, of these ideas and issues, and then ideas on where to move in correcting them instead of just saying, Oh, you have a tight hip flexor. We'll go do a couch stretch for two minutes, and you're good. Uh, so, uh, one one of the things that I, uh, Cody said that I just sums I think sums things up well is that you got to go after the pelvic position first. I'm not going to stretch something until we get that. And so, just a brilliant piece right there. I think honestly, if that's the main thing you take away from this show, I think we're all in a little bit better place. Uh, in terms of just looking the way that we see athletes. So we're also going to get into Cody's uh, squat progressions. He's written some great pieces and articles that have had a big impact on me and how, how I see the progression and moving forward in, in squatting athletes to make them better athletes, to load them in a way that allows their bodies to move as they are meant to. So without me rambling anymore, let's get on to episode 82 with Cody Plofker. Cody, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Joel. I'm really excited to be on. So so some of the stuff that you're doing with Postural Restoration Institute, integrating that into your practice, just putting a lot of really great systems together uh, is so exciting and intriguing to me. I think the field is, is has so much to benefit from the work that you're doing. So could you give us a background on yourself as an athlete and then a coach? Okay, so... Um... Growing up, I played a little bit of everything. I actually played golf in high school and college. Um, was like a, I guess, a pretty successful D3 college golfer. Uh, but actually started training for that, uh, I guess, for a few kind of different reasons. But just wanted to kind of hit the ball a little bit further, move a little bit better. Um, and kind of just really dove into, like, movements. I think, I think golf is, like kind of like the essence of movement and um, really kind of made me learn so much about training and, and how the body moves and all that. Um, but eventually started just liking training more than golf and just did some kind of general strength training after that a little bit and got into Olympic weightlifting, uh, competed probably for about two or three years um, in that. And I, I really loved it because it's so technical, just like golf, but there's a little bit more, you know, 
training and aggression in. Um, nothing, nothing too successful. I'd say university nationals uh, qualifying for that was like my my big achievement. But I kind of stopped doing that just because my body started breaking down and I started getting hurt. Um, and that's actually what what led me to PRI because I had some injuries that I, I really wasn't able to get a good answer with, and I uh, went to a few places and really never got you know. Uh, really got it fixed. I only kind of got some band-aid treatments that made me feel better initially, but but really when I kind of started diving in PRI, it really it explained what I had going on way more than anyone was able to to give me a, a good answer for, and it and it fixed it. So I was kind of hooked from there on out. Yeah, that's a that's such an interesting anecdote with um, golf transitioning into Olympic lifting, and I know uh, clearly the sports performance and, and strength and conditioning based field is certainly becoming more integrated. Uh, with golf, but I imagine that rotational uh, ability that you needed really—you probably were looking back at yourself as a golfer all the time and in, in, through the PRI sessions and those types of things. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, just being able to rotate in and out of the hip and transfer weight from one side to another, and not 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 torquing your back is is everything in golf. Yeah, for sure. So, what are some uh, uh, what co- what types of groups of athletes are you mostly working with now? Are you a little bit of everything? Is there any uh, groups that you specialize with? So, um, I actually just opened up my own facility about four or five months ago, um, and we're we're located inside of a big sporting complex. It's uh, we're inside of like the biggest indoor turf in New Jersey, so we're kind of right alongside them. So, the main sports that, that we really see right now are uh, lacrosse field hockey, some soccer. Um, I'd say lacrosse is kind of the main one. It's, it's mostly high school athletes, a little bit of college. Um, I've worked with a bunch of like NFL professionals in the past, but right now it's it's mo- mostly high school and college lacrosse players. Cool. So uh, athletes who have both kind of that strong, uh, like linear component, but then also they have to rotate and throw. So like that's probably a perfect mix for some of the things that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've since then kind of given – you know, dive really big into, you know, speed and agility training and, and trying to learn a lot of that because I've done a, a few years of like NFL combine training. So I, I definitely try to surf them with that because lacrosse is one of those populations that's not super like integrated with like great strength and conditioning, at least from what I've seen. So just trying to get them basic speed and agility and, and, and even just a general strength foundation, I think is really beneficial for these guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, aside from from PRI, uh, what schools of thought have impacted you and helped you formulate your current training methodology? Um, so, if we're looking from like a movement assessment perspective, obviously PRI has been has been huge. I've taken probably like ten plus courses and and still struggle with it. So, I'll continue to take them. Um, FMS definitely has. Um, I've taken FMS and I've taken the SFMA and. I think there's a lot of gold in both of those. I know they get some criticism for, for little things, but I think there's kind of, they're, they're a little bit misunderstood. And um, I, I think there's a lot of gold in them. And especially as, as a new coach, you know, PRI might be a little overwhelming, but maybe someone starting out. I think FMS is a great place to start to learn, to assess your athletes. And then the, the breakouts for SFMA, I think are, are really good at times. Um, I've taken FRC, um, I don't use it all the time, but however, I, I do like a lot of the principles from it and I, I do use it. So I kind of try to, you know, apply it and, and where I can, um, if I think that there's a place where it helps, because it definitely does work. Um, 
you get some pretty good good changes in range of motion that actually stick. But I'd say overall, PRI is definitely the the biggest piece that has influenced the way I look at and assess movement. Well, that's that's awesome. And yeah, one of the one of the questions I wanted to ask you is is how you're integrating that in your assessment process. Uh, so let's let's dive right into that. So an athlete comes to you, you know, you have all these tools, you have, um, the FMS, the SFMA, you have the, you know, the various PRI ideals. How are you putting that together when an athlete walks in your door? And then maybe hopefully we can get specific and get into some case studies and, and some things that people can kind of put in front of them with an actual like, like assessment exercise and an idea. For sure. So in the past I've done the, uh, the FMS and then I would kind of as I learn more and more, we would start to do more PRI tests and that. And right now, I'm not doing any of the FMS. So my initial assessment after going on over intake and goals and all that, um, I'll look at standard table tests. Of, you know, I'll start with like a passive leg raise. Um, I'll, I'll check um, supine hip IR and ER. Then I'll do the adduction drop or the modified overs test, um, depending on what, what I see for and if I kind of want to break anything out from there. Um, I'll usually look at like, uh, um, honestly, a lot of times I, w- I won't even look at like upper body and shoulders because uh, with these athletes, I'm kind of focused primarily on how their lower quadrant moves. But if I have a baseball player or, or somebody where I think it's more important, I might kind of break out shoulders a little bit more. Um, and kind of depending on what I see there, you know, we can go into specifics, but I might break something out. If not, and I don't, I don't really see anything glaring. Um, I will get them standing, and then I'll kind of go through a uh, modified version of the SFMA, a little bit um, simplified. But I will look at their toe touch or you know multi-segmental flexion, um, multi-segmental extension, rotation, and then you know that's kind of the 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 movement part of the assessment. Um, depending on the case and how much time we have and what I want to do with them, I might try some activities or some correctives. Um, and actually show them, you know, what, what we're able to change, you know, try to get them a little bit of buy-in and and understand why we're doing some of these specific correctives on day one. Um, but it can also be another part of the assessment for me because you try something and you kind of can learn a little bit more about their specific presentation. If it, if it works or doesn't work is I'm definitely not at a level where everything, every corrective I pick is going to kind of work and get the change we're going after. Uh, on day one. So sometimes I'm going to have to try a few things to, to get what we're trying to get at. Okay. Yeah, I got you. So you've, you've gone away from the FMS, uh, gone into more of the PRI assessment with the SFMA, like breakouts kind of when needed is would that be a good way of kind of summarizing what you, what you've done there? Yeah, definitely. That's fair. Yeah, I was going to say, so I liked what you said earlier about the, the FMS and how it's, if you're a starting coach and you're just looking at basic basic movements to look at i i it does make sense like if you took a 23 year old uh college grad in many cases they the fms would probably be a lot easier for them to start intaking information than uh pri i would imagine for a lot of um... exactly yeah <laughs> totally and so i definitely do think that so when i get uh interns and new coaches i do try to teach them the fms and um i do think there's value in it and I've been lucky enough to kind of work with uh, a few years, a kind of had a guy consulting with the company I used to work at who was uh, pretty high up in the FMS and kind of has helped them teach courses and create a lot of their material. And I kind of learned, I learned a lot from, from him. So that was really valuable, but kind of my take on it is that like the FMS is not, it's a screen. However, I think it should be an assessment. Like 
the the research is not very good on if it predicts injuries or not because they're so multifactorial that you know that's not what we should be using it for. I think that the FMS has a lot of merit if you use that as your assessment and apply breakouts to it. Um, and a lot of times that's how they teach it, or that's how guys like Charlie Weingroff might might teach and view at it. But they just don't teach that in the courses, and I, I kind of think it's a shame because there is a lot of merit if you take somebody that's got a one or a two or something and actually break it out and, and determine which joint it is and if it's a mobility or stability problem. So when I when I do the FMS, I, I try to kind of apply uh, a breakout system similar to the SFMA. You know, for example, if we're looking at a squat and someone's got a one or a two on the squat, like it doesn't tell you what it is. All, all it tells you, it's not a three and you know it's not a perfect squat, but you know, it, it could be hips, it could be ankles it, it could be knees although probably pretty rarely you know it, it could be an upper body problem or you know i think probably the biggest goal that that comes from the fms and sfma logic is you know is it a mobility issue or is it a stability or motor control issue and you know i see so many people just thinking everything is a mobility issue and you just got to mobilize you got to roll and got to stretch and you know uh it's just bringing the wrong tool to the job. So I think really the, the thing that's been, you know, the most critical kind of to my background is understanding what is a mobility issue and what is a stability issue. And I think at least with the population I see most of the time, you know, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, it's not actually a true mobility issue. And, and just stretching and cranking away is really not doing what you're trying to do. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I uh, after doing the PRI courses and then uh, reading some of the work that Justin's been doing, and, and as I dig more into it, I, it is amazing to see like like what we would commonly think is an ankle mobility restriction being uh, linked to things upstream, like the, uh, even the, the breathing pattern in the hips and and <clears throat> uh, what uh so maybe specifically too, I always like to to draw kind of a specific example. So if we're talking about assessing an athlete's squat and, and we'll get into the progression of actually training it, but let's say maybe taking the overhead squat from the FMS, uh, how would you, how would you break that down? So what are, what are some things that you're looking for in determining what's, uh, what you really want to look at? How do you relate that into PRI? And then, um, then how you might, uh, look, use SFMA for that as well. Okay, so um, when I was doing FMS, I would I would do the overhead squat with you know instruct them you know feet straight ahead, don't let them turn out you know shoulder width apart, arms overhead, and then I, I would score them on the kind of one to three basis, and then depending what they get you know I, I would break that out. However, right now I'm not doing that. I'm just, I just have them do a body weight squat, usually hands on their hips. Um, but I'll kind of take a look at that, see how it looks. If if it looks pretty money and you know, they're able to get to a consistent full depth depth without extreme like changes in, in lumbar curve or, or feet going super wide. You know, I'm assuming there's no kind of big mobility restrictions. We might just need just got to find the right progression or regression for that specific individual that we can load up safely. However, if, if I'm seeing something that's pretty funky, um, I'm going to I'm going to look where it is and. And I'm going to assess the ankles. And, you know, I probably should just assess the ankles of everyone that comes in because it's so important. Ankle mobility is, is that important. And in so many field athletes, it's so restricted and it can just lead to, um, you know, losses up and down the chain. But, but also just like athletes that are just kind of stiff and can't get into the positions you want to. So 
I will check the ankles if I see anything going on and I'm looking at, you know, symmetry side to side, but also at the very least, like 35 degrees of dorsiflexion. Um, and then I will look at kind of their, I will compare what I'm seeing with their standing squat to kind of their, their hip range of motion, their kind of passive uh, mobility that I checked beforehand and kind of the, the most common things I see, at least with, with the people that I work with is very little hip internal rotation. Um, I would say most people that come to me on one or more sides, they just have so little hip internal rotation um, that it's going to be affected in their squat. Um, and, you know, I, I'm talking like sometimes having as little as like three degrees of hip internal rotation. Um, and, you know, then you're just going to see lack of ability to hip depth. You're going to see butt wink. Uh, um, you'll see feet turning out, um, really whatever it is. So that's kind of the most common thing I see. Um, and then usually I will try to, you know, look, look at some correctives and kind of see if we're able to kind of get them that range, get them that hip internal rotation, and then kind of see how that affects their squat from there. Yeah, sure thing. So let's dig into those two things, I think, because that I, I, I know the ankle mobility thing, you, you, you see kind of everything, right? You like the like people that probably have the most basic level people are trying to stretch it. Then you got the traction bands and, and there's so many ideas out there. Uh, sure. so I'd like first, uh, how do you look at, uh, correcting ankle restrictions? So I'm going to look at, um, I guess first, if it is a, if you apply some, you know, some SFMA logic, but is it a, uh, a true joint mobility issue or is it more of a soft tissue dysfunction? Um, meaning like say I'm, I'm assessing somebody's ankle and I'll kind of just ask them where they feel it. And if they're feeling kind of a, a pinch in the front of the ankle, that's probably more of a, a true joint mobility issue. However, if they just feel really tight calves and, and plantar flexors, um, that will usually be a soft tissue dysfunction. And that's not something I think stretching is going to go away um, because that's probably more of a motor control issue. Those calves and, and plantar flexors, they're just trying to hold you upright against gravity. They're part of your, your PEC pattern, right? Or your, your giant extension pattern. So probably what you see most common, especially with good athletes in this extension pattern is it's actually a, a position of anterior weight bearing. So the, the weight goes forward, right? You're going to see these athletes with like a very flat thoracic spine where their shoulder blades are not fitting very well on their rib cage. Um, if you drew like a plumb line, like their hips are going to be forward to center. And these are usually the guys that are going to have limited ankle mobility due to like really tight calves and stretching is not really going to do what you're, what you're trying to get at. Um, so the biggest thing there is just to, to allow them to, you know, so it's, it's a matter of tone. Those calves aren't actually truly short. There's just neurological tension in them because you're trying to hold yourself up against gravity and not fall over. So stretching is not going to do it. What you need to do is kind of actively drive your center of mass backwards, um, drive that center of mass backwards quite a bit, right? Get some posterior tilt, do any kind of activities or standing exercises that allow you to do that. And I think a lot of times what you'll find is that those shut off. Another reason I think you see tight calves are you're trying to extend a hip if, if Probably the other huge limitation I see a lot is most athletes, I see they just can't extend their hip. Like you'll get them doing a, um, like an extension drop test, um, which is the, the, the Thomas test, modified Thomas test. Or uh, I, I personally like to just assess it during the adduction drop test or the modified overs test. And like see like between like 15 to 30 degrees uh, restrictions in hip extension of like athletes who 
should have full hip extension every time they run. Um, so if that happens, you know they're not using the, the prime movers of their hamstrings and glutes to extend their hip, right? All they're trying to do, their brain has just found a way around it by using probably their back and their calves to extend their hip, okay? So the first thing you have to do is regain that hip extension, reposition that pelvis however you have to, regain that hip extension, get the hamstrings and glutes to extend the hips again, and usually what you'll find is those calves are no longer a problem. Yeah, that's... I think what you just said there, well, well, everything of that was really was really good stuff. Um, my, as you were talking about the the muscle extension patterning towards the end, like athletes who use their back and calves, I do think we always see those athletes who it's like you know they have huge calves and you know they're compensating for something, uh, and there's there's something up with their gait. So I think that that's something that I'm excited to uh, learn more about uh, PRI in. And in, in those regards in the muscle and the muscle firing and, and the process of re, like reestablishing good hip extension, I think there's a lot of systems out there uh, talking about that. It's, it is so critical, right? If you can't extend your hip properly, uh, you're going to have a lot of issues there. Right? And the, the internal rotation, uh, what, um, so uh, actually, could you talk a little bit briefly on, so the, you got the ankle mobility and, and the issues. So what are, is there, is there a place for, for, Anybody where we're stretch some stretching or weighted stretching or using the the traction bands or any of that is there a place for that in your uh, system or would that be a good idea with anybody so someone maybe who didn't have that PEC extension pattern? Yeah, there there definitely is Joel. And when I was a little bit younger, I I definitely said that you should never stretch and you should never throw the bands around. And I was you know dogmatic just because I believe so strongly that you know. Um, so many people were, were stretching when, it, when it, there was no point. So I'm not that extreme with it anymore. I do think that there is a time and a place for, for stretching or kind of that banded work or, or even some foam rolling. However, I just don't think you should just be blindly doing it if something feels tight. It should be after an assessment and you determine that something is a true mobility issue or, or at least a tone issue and not just a, a motor control issue because you I do think you can actually make something worse if you're stretching something that shouldn't like if you're stretching a hamstring I do think that that can actually increase back pain increase more extension just because those hamstrings are the only thing that's actually holding on to your excuse me holding on to your pelvis to kind of get you stability and you take that stability away from the hamstrings and then your brain your brain just freaks out and kind of goes into panic um I would say the the places I I probably might use a, a band or, or do some static mobility work. Uh, most often is actually the ankle. So say I determined it wasn't a true, you know, uh, motor control issue uh, of the calves and it might actually be more of like a joint mobility issue. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, m- I might do a, like a banded ankle mobility drill. So that's a, that's a pretty common one. Um, and I would say if I had to assign a, mobility drill to everyone that I don't think would do a lot of harm that would be one because there, there's just so many athletes who are are deficient in that um ankle dorsiflexion it's just that important um uh, that's actually a pretty common one that I'll, that I'll have a lot of athletes do and especially just see it higher level I don't know if it's the cleats guys are wearing or the way they've been trained to, to squat or taking their ankles over the years but you know, I don't, I don't see it as common in the high school guys, but as soon as I start working with, with college and professional athletes, those are the guys that I see that just have like the tightest ankles and, and no ankle mobility. And because they probably haven't moved well in years, that's when you actually need to get in there and actually do some joint mobility work. 
You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. I, because I, I do think like, and I don't. I just read this from one coach. It's like never be black and white about anything. Like, I think. Actually, I think it might have been Mike Roberts that said something about that on his podcast. Like, we tend to take these stances on one side of the equation. I've done it a lot of times. I mean, I've gone to uh, seminars before PRI where I was came out. I was like, oh, stretching, you know, any stretching is dumb. Like, you should never stretch. You can fix it this way. Look, watch. <laughs> and and uh, I think we, we tend to get there. Same thing. I've been the same way with, like, weightlifting. I've been into, you know, you need to get really strong. And then I've been, like, being lifting heavy isn't important at all. And then I've kind of gone back. And so uh, I, I definitely, and that's something I'd like to, uh, we'll, we'll get to later in the show. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I definitely think there's a time and place for things. And, and uh, even in, in my own, like even just starting to go through the PRI courses, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm like, oh, you can, you know, ankle. I think it's just the desire to go against the grain very, very strongly in many places. If everybody's doing something, it's like, oh, look what I'm doing. I can fix this without doing that. And, and, not to say that I mean I mean the stuff when you can and it's awesome and uh, and I think that the the breathing and, and PRI is changing the game with a lot of things but I, I'm glad you mentioned that long story short to to say yes there can be a time and place for when athletes are going to need that in their program. Sure, and no, I mean I definitely appreciate you saying that. I, I totally agree, but especially when you're du- when you're young, you know, <laughs> that's kind of when when I feel like we have these strongest opinions because you. You know, I, I definitely, you think you know everything and you think you figure it out and then you learn a little bit more and you realize that you don't and you kind of don't have these strong opinions anymore. So, yeah, absolutely. So actually, I'd like to talk a little bit more. Uh, so we talked about ankle mobility there. Uh, could we talk a little bit about the, the internal rotation? Um, so do you assess that? I've seen people like like typically lying on their back being the main one, but also in a, in a chair position a possible assessment, but that's something I've had a hard time, uh, reestablishing. Like, like I get a lot of athletes who are really bad at that. I remember when I first learned how to test it and I was starting to first really learn the importance of it. And I was linking it to like what I saw when athletes were sprinting a little bit, like when their lead knee and then seeing if they had rotation there and how that impacted it. And I, I remember I went home and I tested my, my brother and he literally, it was almost like negative. It was so bad. That's crazy. It was almost, that, right? it was almost like, it, not that only did he not have any, it was almost like you couldn't even get him in, barely even get him in a neutral. I was like, holy cow. Um, anyways, so I, that's always been something that I'm interested in how to fix because that's something I've, I, I, this me, I've never like tried to stretch that um, just because I don't know enough about it. Like if I don't know enough about something, then I don't want to start stretching it. And as I learn more about the hip and, and those types of things, I, I think I've, I'm getting somewhere. But uh, what's your take on, on internal rotation deficits and, and how to go about improving that and helping that out? So this is definitely something I've, I've studied a bunch just because when I was kind of getting into training um, and playing golf, like I when I started learning what hip internal rotation is, I, I knew mine was limited and I would just try to find ways to, to stretch it, right? I would even ask people like, what muscle internally rotates the hip. And I guess I was looking for like one muscle at the time. And like, little did I know there's like 30 muscles that actually contribute to hip internal rotation. So it's, it's a lot more complex than, than I originally um, thought. But I, I do think it's one of those things that probably gets a bad rep because people think hip internal rotation is valgus. And like, I know Justin said it on, on, when he was on here, but you know, 
most people are so enamored with the glutes and they just think we got to jerk drive knees out, knees out. And, you know, hip internal rotation is, is so important and it's not valgus. And actually I would make the argument that having hip internal rotation is how you avoid valgus. Um, but so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm probably going to check pelvic position and almost everything starts with that. So that would just be, you know, is someone in a big anterior tilt? If it is, they're probably not going to have a lot of hip internal rotation. So hip internal rotation is, is coupled with hip flexion. Um, so if somebody goes into a big anterior tilt, that's actually your hips moving into flexion um, and they move into internal rotation. Now, usually what you're going to see is that the femur will then compensate by going into external rotation and abduction. So you're starting off in that position of external rotation um, and you're probably going to be limited in internal rotation. So if I check somebody's adduction drop test or modified overs and it's very positive, um, if they can't adduct or extend their hip, um, I'm, I'm first going to start there. So I'm not going to do any true mobility work. I'm going to first try to like true mobility or, or stretching of the hips. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, begin by trying to reposition the pelvis with, with anything that's going to get them some hamstrings and abs or, or kind of shut off some back and quad muscles. And that will usually fix their sagittal plane. Um, and then sometimes that will increase their hip internal rotation. Maybe say you're going from like five to, to 15 or something, but it's not always going to get you everything you need. So then I'm going to try to facilitate some, some of the muscles that are going to help to get some hip internal rotation. And then it kind of comes down to, you know, do you need inhibition? Are your external rotators so tight that they're just limiting it? Or are you just having the wrong muscles do it? And you just need to learn how to use a glute medius instead of like a TFL to internally rotate a hip to kind of get you more, more active hip internal rotation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I do know that, uh, it was the, it was that Pat Davidson article that he wrote on squatting it was knees in for the win. And I, I had to read that article like three times to really, and I'll put that in the show notes too. Cause I think that uh, just everything you were saying, I think is, is goes along with that and is really valuable, but it took me a few times to read it to really get that idea of if you are an anterior tilt and your hip, hips already internally rotated, what that actually means for your squatting and, and your movement in general. Yeah, for sure. Now that, that article was pretty complex, but I think Pat, Pat laid out some really good ideas. Um, but yeah, it's it's super important, and you just got to go after the pelvic position first. I mean, it's, you know that's kind of how PRI fits into my thought process and stuff. But I'm not going to stretch something until we get that. Um, so that's definitely where we're starting. And then there's a few activities that that I, that I might like to do. I, I could show you a few, but really where you're just kind of getting some relative posterior tilt or getting out of extension, and really just just training hip internal rotation from there. So like a, like a wall supported, um, a reach with a ball between your knees and like your feet out wide, that can be a great one. I, um, even look just like a traditional 90, 90, but you just throw your feet out wide, you know, squeeze a ball between your knees and try to get into some IR. Like you're, you're not stretching anything. You're, you're just breathing, holding a few breaths. So you don't have to worry about, you know, actually holding or stretching, but just do a test recast and see if that's increasing somebody's hip internal rotation. And a lot of times you're going to find that that's kind of all you need to do to get there. Um, if I'm really not getting the changes that I want from those, though, I might, that's another area where I, where I might do a, a stretch or a, a mobility drill and I'll do um, like a posterior hip cap mobilization. That's something that you see that's tight with a lot of athletes, especially people that are strong. It might be 
used to the weight room because they're always kind of driving that that you know extension and, and um, abduction, right? So a lot of times that posterior hip capsule gets tight, and that can kind of prevent the femur from gliding back and down in the acetabulum. Um, so a lot of times that'll look, there's a few different ways to do it, but that'll look like a like a pigeon stretch. It's kind of like a modified version of a pigeon stretch, and you're just holding there for a few minutes. That that if you do need some mobility work that can definitely be a good way to increase some some hip mobility say you haven't had ir in years i would definitely give that one try you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster oh yeah yeah that's that's great stuff man i think that uh yeah being probably one of the most if not like kind of the most common things i tend to see with my athletic populations i work with like working with like what me the water polo and, and ten, a lot of tennis players at least my um that uh i i see that all the time it's it's i and as well as thinking about it too I, and you said it uh like the the link between uh you know we 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 were so into knees out and use the glute band and do everything with the glute band and your glute medius is clearly weak so do you know your squats need to have knees out more and one of the mind-blowing things for me was the idea of like linking internal rotation with power production and and internal rotation in the knees yeah not being valgus and and I would I would watch myself jump in some of my plyometric videos like from back in the day when I wasn't being coached obviously and if if a a coach saw me they might have said hey why are your knees like going towards each other that's valgus that's terrible but as I learned more about the internal rotation and kind of the torque production of the body I'm like my body. That was just my body winding itself up. Like that wasn't valgus. That's internal rotation in the loading. Um, so, uh, anyways, uh, long story short, like, what's um, could you explain a little bit more about that PRI concept of internal rotation and and, and power and and how that fits in a, like movement, hip extension, like what what athletes need on the field? Sure. So I guess so. If I'm being honest, I'm not typically thinking directly power. Like I'm thinking like force absorption first actually like most athletes can can produce power they they can extend they can they can adduct um but most athletes can't flex right so they can't flex pretty much every joint in their body their entire spines including you know your ankles and your your hips um so first i'm just trying to teach people how to flex and do like a wrestle squat so they can squat but then even if that say an athlete has no hip ir you know, their, their squat's not, not going to look really pretty, so I'm not going to really be able to load them up heavy like the way I want to. I, I'm not going to be able to put a barbell on their back safely and comfortably, so we first just have to kind of develop that foundation. But if you really want to go, like, straight from a performance spec, um, you know, standpoint, you could make the argument kind of like you just said, that you're, you're getting a pre-stretch of the muscles that you're trying to use. So I think people um, – make this argument about bolt right but like because he, he will cross over and if you think about it you're getting like a huge pre-stretch through your external rotators and, and abductors when you do that so getting that inter-rotation that people kind of fear can actually allow you to kind of elicit a little bit more power so if you think about like gait from a from a 3d point of view when you're extending your hip you're 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 also abducting and externally rotating it right so everyone knows that's a glute doing it. So it's not just hip extension, but it's also abduction and ER. If you're going into deflection, adduction, and internal rotation, you're getting a huge pre-stretch going through that that muscle and that tendon, which you could definitely make the argument that that's going to allow you to produce more power upon uh, extension. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's absolutely, man. I, I, that's That's been such a game changer, that, that thought and idea for me in the past year. 
Uh, and then you mentioned a little bit, I'd like to actually touch on this too. You talked a little bit about hip extension and you're talking about the PEC and extension patterning and athletes who are using their back as a big main mover in hip extension or their calves. Um, what do you, what do you consider a healthy hip extension and maybe what are just a couple key points and some things you're assessing or addressing in getting an athlete to extend their hip properly? Cause I think there's a lot of systems out there, a lot of ideas out there. And I'd love to get your take on that. So the, the, the first way I start assessing hip extension is actually during the adduction drop or the modified um, Oprah's test. So if, if someone's not familiar, you lay an athlete on their side, uh, flex both knees to 90 degrees, and I'm just going to take the top hip um, and try to pull it back into extension. And then I'll try to adduct it down towards the table or, or midline. Um, so that's actually how I like to, to assess hip extension. A lot of people will use like the – the Thomas test or PRI calls it the, the extension drop where you, you lay somebody on their back on a table, um, kind of hips at like the edge of the table. So when they'll let one leg drop all the way and if it kind of drops all the way out, that'll be, that'll be hip extension. I don't love that test. Maybe it's just my eye. I'm not like, I have a hard time actually telling if someone's positive or negative in that. So, so I just do the adduction drop and what I'll do, I'm really just trying to stabilize their pelvis with one, with one hand. Um, and I'm trying to pull their femur back and they should be able to get their, their, you know, their femur or their knee, even with like their hip socket. Um, and if I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for where it goes. I'm also kind of looking at what kind of end feel I'm getting. Um, and, and that will tell me if they're, if they're limited or not. Um, and then from there, I'm, I'm kind of looking at two things to try and differentiate. Is it just a positional issue? So if the pelvis goes into anterior tilt, right. Um, that's, that's acetabulum on femur hip flexion. So if they're starting in hip flexion, they're probably not going to have full hip extension. So do we just need to improve position or is it a, a hip flexor tightness issue? So is it actually that, that hip flexor, that psoas, or, or just really kind of overactive tight quads that are preventing that? And what I'll do from there, say they are limited and I want to break it out further. So normally in the adduction drop test, you have a, a knee um, that's bent, right? I'll just straighten that leg out and I'll do it again. And then that'll kind of help me differentiate. Now, if they can extend their hip all the way with that leg straight, that tells me that it's not um, a positional issue because they can extend it under those circumstances. They just cannot extend the hip while you're asking of like a full stretch of the quad muscle. So that'll kind of tell me that it, that it's a, a quad or hip flexor tightness. Uh, however, I don't think that's a true tightness. I think that's probably more of a, a tone or, or so as issue trying to hold on to the, um, you know, lumbar spine just to give it some stability. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah, I think, I think the very common, um, the common, uh, a, a approach to that in many ways is just, uh, Thomas test. Are you tight? Go stretch more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Um, the, I've, I've had interesting, like athletes, I'll, I'll do a manual like glute strength test and they lie on their back <clears throat> and they, and they lie on their back and, and I'll have them lift their knee off the table to, to try to test their glute with their knee bent. And it's like some athletes, they could barely even get their knee off the table. And I'm like, okay, like maybe I can make your glute, I guess, test stronger through some different things here, but you're probably going to go on and run and still not be able to extend your hip, you know, very well, uh, from just a range of motion perspective. And so 
that always gets me thinking. I really, I really just love hearing more about how to, ex- how to address hip extension and, and, uh, and just make athletes faster, but also more injury free too. Cause I'm like, man, if you can't get that, get that hip extended well, like you're just totally working against yourself. You're always in that flexion state. Like you mentioned, if you're in start inflection, you aren't going to get back there. So, and then, I mean, it's great you mentioned that. So what, what I'll do from there is when we go on to our, our speed and agility part of the assessment, I'll have them run or uh, 10 or 20, depending on kind of where they're at, and I'll film it. And I'll literally show them, especially, I love it when it when they can only extend on one side, because I'll show them what, what their gait looks like during their acceleration. And, you know, be like, hey, like, do you remember on the table where I couldn't pull your leg back all the way? Like, you can do it on this side. Remember, you can't do it on that side. Like, look how it affects your, your sprinting. And then that kind of gives them a little bit more buy-in and they can kind of see how they're they're leaving a little bit of you know of speed out on the table just because they're not able to do it so trying to sometimes trying to convince an athlete why they need to be doing these correctives is you know you got to put a little work into it just to get that buy-in yeah and that's that's one of the coolest things for me the more i learn the more i can see something from a basic test or, or a basic movement like a bodyweight squat or an isometric lunge show up and how someone runs uh, that creates so much more buy-in and it's just fun it's it makes that that test or assessment or corrective that much gives it that much more value and and that's something that's just been really exciting for me and and that's the goal too like we got to remember like we're coaches our, our goal is to get our athletes faster on the field or or track or whatever it is like they don't care if they gain more hip extension like it only met like a we want to keep them healthy so we know they should have these positions in the weight room and on the field to, to stay healthy. But like really it's hard to get like a 16 year old healthy kid to understand that. But if you can explain how these assessments and correctives that you're doing are actually going to make them faster, right. Rather than trying to be like a, a bad physical therapist, if you're actually able to show how they can improve their performance, like that's, that's the point of going down this rabbit hole and doing these assessments. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I can't agree more with you on that. Uh, Cody, the second half of our talk today, I just want to get a little bit into more, just some of the more practical nuts and bolts uh, in terms of like exercises coaches are very familiar with. And uh, one of the main things I've seen you write on this and and I I really liked your work was progressing squatting in athletes. And obviously (laughs) the whole, you know, chest out, butt back. uh, I think that hopefully the work that PRI is doing and, and that you guys are doing out there uh, and that and that nucleus, that PRI nucleus, the strength coaches on the East Coast, I think is starting to filter down. Uh, but and Justin touched on this too, uh, and maybe you can kind of rehash it. So, what are we trying to avoid when squatting, and what's your progression to get an athlete squatting to a good level? And then, when you are going to load it up, how are you doing that? Okay, awesome. All right, let's let's tackle that. Um, so, I will say that the you know, the context, the context definitely depends. So I might use different cues or even different, uh, loading parameters with different athletes. So there are times where I will tell an athlete to sit back, but you know, or drive the knees out. Remember like Justin said, when he was on, those are just cues. Those aren't techniques that I want people squatting with. It might just be a cue or a reminder that I give an athlete. Um, so let's start with the, the progression. Um, I will, after we kind of do our movement assessment, you know, I'll, I'll walk somebody through the progression depending on where they're at and usually starts with that reaching plate squat where they're just holding a, a light object out in front of them. Um, and I'm kind of seeing maybe if they don't have the stability or they're falling over before, you know, 
with no weight, giving them that counterbalance actually allows them to, to move their center of gravity backwards, kind of access their abs in a way. And if that cleans things up, that kind of tells me a little bit. Um, you know, most athletes, if they're not, you know, a lot of athletes that I'm kind of starting to work with, they're, they're, they haven't been in the gym before, they haven't been trained properly. So I'm going to start with goblet squat, and I'm really not going to let them go on until they prove to me that they have like a, a, a right or a reason to even go heavier. Um, so really the point, you know, is try to get to like half their body weight for, for 10 reps or just to a point where the limiting factor just becomes their upper body. Um, and, and when that happens, I think that their, their technique is kind of self-limiting and, you know, it's hard to do a really bad goblet squat. So I still am going to cue it, but, but you're not going to be able to kind of sit back too far or, or bend over. You'll just have to drop the weight. So I really do think the goblet squat is just a, a really good way of teaching that with like younger athletes. What's your, what's um, your take on with, the knees forward and the hips back, like balance sorry. of that, by the way, like, how are you, how are you kind of approaching segments in that? So I actually, I actually want both. And I think it's ridiculous that like people can't, people have, think you have to pick one of the, one or the other. Like there's either, it's like this like black or white relationship between those, just like low bar, like sit as far back, externally rotate your feet as hard as you can squat that kind of looks like a hinge or you go forward and you just drive the knees forward and you're not using your hips at all. Um, you know, and, and like, I actually want both. So, you know, remember like there's gotta be a middle ground, kind of the same thing we were talking about before, how like we become dogmatic when we're, when we're younger. I think a lot of people are also, you know, like dogmatic about, about how they kind of coach and exercise and they think that there's like one way, but, but I definitely think that like, both of them have merit. So I'm actually going to cue somebody to, to drive their hips back. I want them to drive their hips back. However, I also want them to drive their knees forward. And that kind of confuses a lot of people because a lot of people have been taught just to drive back. Um, so I'll say that what we're trying to do, right, when, when we drive our hips back, you're still loading the hips. However, you're not driving your hips back so far that you're trying to keep a vertical, a vertical tibia. Because um, when that happens, you're going to do a few things. A, you might just you're just kind of load your hips and back more than you're actually loading like like your quads and knees, and there's nothing wrong with loading a quad or loading a knee. Um, the second thing is because you're driving that center of gravity so far back, and if you have a weight on somebody's back, right, they feel like they're gonna fall over. They're gonna try to then they're gonna try they feel like they're gonna fall backwards. So they're gonna try to do anything they can to not fall backwards. That's gonna be by extending their spine. If they extend their spine or hyper extend their spine. Um, in the squat that'll kind of push their center of gravity forward a little bit, right? So then you're just getting more back. And I think this is a lot of times why, why back squats mess up people's back is because they've been told to sit back so far because people fear loading the knee that it, they're really just loading a back. Um, so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to tell somebody to sit their hips back while driving their knees as far forward as they can. And what that's going to do, it's actually going to allow them to keep a little bit more of a neutral pelvic position. I don't want a posterior tilt. I just am trying to avoid an extreme arch. Um, that's going to allow them to kind of use their hamstrings quite a bit more in a squat, keep a more neutral position. And now you're actually going to load a hip and a knee, right? Rather than just loading the hip. Um, yeah, there are some athletes, maybe like really young athletes that are going to come to you and they're not going to be loading their hip at all. And they're just kind of, sitting forward so th that's a time where i will tell them to sit back um and I'm, i might use that cue for a few weeks or something or i might actually have them squat back to a box 
So you're getting the hips back, but just remember it, it's a cue. I'm not actually trying to like drive them back into like a hinge style of a squat. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, again, I think that people can get very, very strongly, um, you know, one way or the other, like, because yeah, you're gonna absolutely have those athletes who you need to have them have the concept of pushing their hips back, like they. I mean, I've I've worked with those athletes quite a bit where they just don't get that, and then obviously, but the balance you don't want to if you take someone's hips back for years under a heavy load, you're gonna mess up their muscle balance and firing patterns. And so I, I'm glad you did mention that because there certainly are a lot of athletes who need that at least element of of the equation, and and it's good to. The more, the more you know, and the more people you hear from, I guess the more, the more, uh, like we said, it, it rings true. Like there's not the black and white is not, uh, is not there. There's there's different athletes and different needs and different effects. Yeah, con- context is is key, and, and it always will be. Um, kind of one one other thought on that. So I guess when a lot of people do the you know the sitting back to a, to a box or something like that, um, they might do it with athletes who are having kind of more more knee problems and more pain and. I could make the argument, and I've even kind of seen it happen anecdotally, where where that actually puts more strain on the knee. So when you're doing that, right, when you're sitting back and kind of arching a little bit more, um, what you're going to find is you're going into a little bit more anterior tilt, and you're actually putting um, you, you have a kind of a shorter quad position there, and you're actually putting a little bit more of uh, like a strain on like patellar tendon. So if you got like patellar tendonitis. So actually, if you do something like a uh, kind of like a restful squat or just like an offset plate squat and you actually allow somebody's knees to go forward as you keep the hamstrings engaged with a little bit of posterior tilt, you're actually getting a really big stretch through that quad and you're going to allow somebody to squat then without putting that, that massive strain on their uh, tendon. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of, of getting good stretch loading through the quads as well. It fits in a little bit of what I try to... <clears throat> address what I'm doing, like uh, like isometric lunges or, or muscle firing pattern stuff where you try to get the quad to lengthen a little bit rather than always having it in a more contracted state. Um, and so I, I like that you, that you mentioned that. I think that's really interesting. I, I wanted to go back to the, uh, you explained the uh, goblet squat. Could you talk just briefly on that breaching plate squat? Because to me, that's almost like the anti-squat, all right, of the way that it's often coached. And uh, I think that's a really interesting thing to go into because I think a lot of people, I, I wasn't familiar with it until probably about maybe two months ago or three months ago. And I saw, I was like, what is this? What, you know, like, what is this? What is this for? Uh, could you explain just a little bit about the, how that works and the principles behind it? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so are you familiar with like the FMS pretty well? Somewhat. I've been through it. I don't use it. So there's if you tell me an exercise, I could probably tell you. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, in the FMS, say, say somebody doesn't have a three on their deep squat, um, then what you'll do is you'll just have them do the same exact squat, but with their heels elevated on the board. Yeah, yeah. So all that's doing, it, it, it might be do one or two things. A, it just kind of helps if they don't have ankle mobility. But the other thing it does is it actually pitches their center, center of gravity forward. And the, the, the squat is really all about just, just managing equilibrium or, or kind of center of gravity position. So all that does is that drives your center of gravity forward. If you have an athlete who already has a forward center of gravity, they're going to be in an extension dominant pattern. So if you drive them forward, the brain is going to counteract by trying to drive their center of gravity backwards. What this is going to do is this is going to allow them to get posterior tilt. That's going to open up their hips. Okay, That will allow them then to get into a deeper squat. 
by allowing them to kind of keep their hips tucked underneath them, which will give them greater ranges of hip flexion that they can squat into. Uh, does that make sense, Joel? Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, too, outside of a strict ankle perspective. Because, yeah, every time I have an athlete fail a squat and elevate their their heels it's always way better but it's Mm -hmm. there's always something in the back of my mind it's like it's more than just the it's got to be more than just the ankle because it's so much easier and and i'm like it can't be just the ankle so it's interesting exactly so so yeah so a lot of times it it won't be the ankle if you really want to dial it down check their ankles if they have full ankle mobility but that improves them you know it was a motor control fix you just allow them to manage their center gravity better so the, the reaching plate squat or the offset plate squat does the exact same thing. You're just putting a light load out in front of them, puts their center of gravity further forward, just like the, um, the wedge or, or board between their heels. All that allows them to do is just move their center of gravity backwards, which correlates to getting their ribs down a little bit, getting their pelvis up underneath. Right? And the way, I, the way I like to explain it is with the, the elevator analogy that Justin used. But so in a neutral pelvic position in a squat, you should have 100 degrees of hip flexion. Okay? If you're starting off an anterior tilt, let's say you're in 15 degrees of it. Now you, you'll only have 85 degrees of, um, of hip flexion available. So that then you get down to the bottom of the squat and you either arch your back super hard, um, kind of knees come in, feet pronate, or that's when the butt wink happens. But if you give them that light load out in front of them that they can keep their pelvis a little bit more stacked underneath them, you'll be able to actually access those full 100 degrees of, of range of motion. And that's kind of that's why that squat cleans things up quite a bit. Okay. Yeah, that makes good sense. I, I really like how just the idea of managing the center of gravity. And I, once you have the awareness of that, it probably really changes the game. I mean, more than just thinking of joints and muscles. Like um, I, I, that the center of gravity where that is and how the athlete manages it, um, it, I think is a really cool idea and, and something that people can get a lot out of and help a lot of athletes with. Sure. So yeah, that's definitely what the <clears> squat <throat> is. And that kind of squat, we'll call it more of like the, the restful squat where you actually might be getting a little flexion in there, uh, lumbar flexion. I know people are, are afraid of that, but, but there's definitely nothing wrong with it under unloaded conditions. So you're, you're not going to be loading this up at all. You have like a 10 pound weight out in front of you. Um, I'm not going to be wanting an athlete to look like that when they're, you know, got a heavy bar on their back. But I'd, I'd argue that if you can't ever do a proper reaching plate squat or do getting a little flexion, if you can never get that flexion, um, you're going to have kind of problems later on in the in the higher level squatting. Yeah, uh, I bet for sure. Uh, so once they do go through the plate squat, the goblet squat, what are the next things up on the list? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to try to do it kind of based on the scenario and what their goals are. If I'm just following the progression, the next one after the goblet squat would be a double kettlebell rack squat. Um, Really similar. So you still, even when you have uh, the goblet squat, right, you still have that that anterior load. So that anterior load, just like we talked about with the reaching squat, is going to allow you to kind of keep your center of mass um, underneath you a little bit. Double kettlebell, same thing. It's just a little bit harder because – you hold the kettlebells a little bit higher and they're a little bit harder to kind of hold, but that's a, that's a great squat. And you know, for, for some athletes, I'm, I'm okay keeping them there for a while. If they're, if they're younger and they don't really have business under a barbell, like you can get, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say you can create a ton of force production, but you can challenge yourself quite a bit and challenge your, your squat pattern. And if you're untrained, even, even get stronger with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. 
And then from there, I'm going to go, honestly, I used to use a front squat. I, I have not been using it a lot uh, for, for a few reasons, but I'm probably going to go to a safety bar for most people if they can do it. And that's kind of become my, my go-to squat variation for most people. Okay. Yeah. So could you explain a little bit about why you prefer the safety bar over the front squat? So both of them, you're getting um, the anterior load. So the load is still staying kind of forward of, you know, your center of mass. Um, The reason that I've gone away from the front squat is because to get in a good front rack position, um, you need a lot of lat and tricep length. And I find a lot of people don't have that full shoulder flexion um, to kind of get that, that lat stretch. So what they'll do instead is they, they'll just extend their back to get in the position. So not, not everyone, but I'll, I'll see it quite a bit. Um, so it can be a great one if you kind of have full, full lat and tricep uh, inhibition and are able to get into a good rack position. It's also just uncomfortable. Some, some people don't like it, um, but that's not really the issue. So, in the safety bar squat, you still have the, the counterbalance or the load still out in front. However, because you can just hold the handles right where you are, um, you don't need nearly as much, you know, lat inhibition or, or lat leg. So, you know, why, why, why stress the back or even kind of like tax shoulder mobility if you really don't need to, but you're still able to kind of reach out in front of you um, because you're able to kind of protract and reach those hands a little bit forward you you are still kind of allowing someone to to keep a, a good you know if you want to call it a neutral spine position and and reach forward to get that weight on front of them so i think a lot of times you'll see a safety bar end up looking a lot, a lot better than a back squat would interesting yeah that that's interesting still with the, the weight still the load still being anterior in front and i and uh yeah that definitely makes sense what would you say about um what's your thoughts on front squatting in terms of like people who would cross their arms over instead of a front rack if they were tight crossing their arms you definitely could. I, I, I don't love it. I, I guess I've, I found that to be the limiting factor, kind of like moving heavy weights. You know, we're trying to load the legs where if we're getting up to these barbells, the goal should is force production. And I don't really want the, um, the, the upper body being the, the limiting factor. If you feel like you can, you can do that and you can kind of squat some, some good weights with, with a cross grip, then I'm totally fine with it. I mean, another option is just to put straps on. If you loop straps on around, you you won't have to have as much shoulder flexion, so that can help too. But sometimes that gets a little unstable as well. Yeah, the when you were talking about the tight lats and the extension patterning, <clears throat> it was making me think about like yeah, athletes who when they're doing Olympic lifts and they're catching with their elbows not very high or or anything like that. It makes me think of some of those PRI stretches that were like specific uh, stretches um, in in the PRI for fitness. And sport. So, so when it, what I was uh, thinking about was when an athlete uh, like can't catch a clean or can't you know get their elbows up in a front squat. I know, and, and this is probably a reductionist thing too, but I think we typically say, oh, well, your wrists are too tight. I mean, how in how many cases if an athlete can't front squat properly, would it be um, the th- the thoracic spine and the lats versus uh, someone whose wrists were legitimately just too tight? I'm going to say probably most of the time it's going to be the, the lats, you know, slash thoracic spine, uh, much less often the wrist. I mean, it, it does happen, but I think, I, I think unless someone ha- has had a serious injury or surgery that it's probably more to do with a, a positional issue and just not allow, not having that, that shoulder flexion. And 
in that um in that position yeah i agree i think that's just really cool stuff because again it's like the go-to is oh you stretch your wrist go stretch your wrist for 60 seconds before you front squat and i get you to clean and do that so uh, i think it's just cool to see that come back to uh, the trunk and spinal engine um so last question and this may be just kind of a uh, just kind of branching off of the squat question but uh so in terms of like athletes going really heavy so so you're loading up your squat and you want to get a big squat like what's your take on how strong you like to see athletes like how heavy you're going to let them go on that uh that safety bar front squat what are some do you have strength standards are there things that you really like to see in that regards um and how do you balance that aspect of the training equation so uh that's that's a, that's a great question and it, it kind of definitely depends on like who i'm working with um right now because i'm working with mostly lacrosse players who have don't have years of experience i feel like they can all they can all get stronger and and it'll benefit them um i don't really have exact numbers that i'm looking for um it's kind of just like one of those things that you know you you, you know when you know it however i've worked with like a bunch of nfl athletes and combine guys and those were definitely the guys that I realized that they did not need to get stronger. So that's when I started kind of diving really deep down DBT rabbit holes and, and started with push unit and eventually got a gym aware and all of our training or, or most of it was at more specific speeds that I think were going to correlate with helping them kind of improve their power and speed on the field rather than just getting them strong. Cause these guys were squatting 600 and 600 plus, And I just, I, I just didn't think that, that, they would really be able to gain anything from more force at those slow speeds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The more the more good coaches I talk to who work with those athletes, the more I I definitely like see that. Like talking to like Scott Salwasser, his athletes who have these who had these like great lifting numbers, but they couldn't put together a great sprint, and then he had to get more specific with their training, and then they were able to get a lot faster um, outside of the heavy loading. And and I love hearing those stories. I think it's just I think it's. Uh, it's definitely good to hear those anecdotes and, and and across the spectrum, obviously, you know, so, so that's, that's good stuff. Uh, well, Cody, I, I think that's all the time we got for today. Um, the appreciate your time, your expertise. This is one of those, like a lot of the, like we talk about with the PRI seminars and, and all those information and, and, and reading Pat Davidson's article, I'm gonna have to go through this, these, uh, um, some of your PRI based answers a few times to really take it all in, man, because it's really good stuff. And, and I think it's stuff that once you know, it just totally changes your perspective and layers of awareness with assessing athletes and doing and doing the fixes that really matter. And and uh, so I appreciate your your knowledge you want you shared with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Joel. Just want to say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it and just uh, grateful for you giving me the opportunity to be on and share. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did putting it together. It's one of those that I can listen to some of those pieces multiple times to just really take it all in. The PRI stuff is very complex. And so uh, congrats for hanging in there on one level. Uh, I know that these are things that, that many of us coaches have to go to uh, these seminars multiple times. But once you do, it's so worth it to be able to have that intimate understanding of what makes athletes tick, how to put them in the right position, see them have less injuries and succeed in their sport. It's a great thing. So I'm, I was so happy to have Cody on. He's such a brilliant coach and uh, just 
amazing to be learning more about this system and how these great coaches have been integrating it into sports performance. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Please uh, leave us a rating or review and also visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, bringing you the best of in each training category. They got things like the free lap timing system, K-Box, Gym Aware. You hear Gym Aware a lot on this podcast lately, especially definitely the premier bar speed measuring device out there. So give their store and blog uh, a look and we'll see you guys soon.